Let me pray for us. God, we ask as we have sung, speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, in only a way that you can. Speak, O Lord, through the finite words that I offer, but through the infinite truths that you want to make known. Speak, O Lord, and change lives, because your word is true and it is good, and your love is better than life. So speak now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This morning, as we are continuing this Too Good to Be True series, we are talking about the true story that some will say is too good to be true. I want us today to cover in exhaustive detail, reading every single verse from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. All right, so buckle up. No, today I want, that's my goal, not through reading every verse but by understanding the heart of our God and the story that he tells us and how his story that he has written and given to us changes our story. And so today I want us to find our place in God's story, but I also want us to see the bigger picture of redemption, of love, of mercy, and of grace that God has been telling from the beginning forever. And so, Genesis 1 is where we start. It all starts with God. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God. Before there was anything that we could see, touch, taste, feel, anything that we can imagine, at the beginning, there was God. He was there before anything else was made because He was not made by hands, by man, by spirit, by anything. He was, He is, and He will always be. And so in the beginning, God. And what did He do? He created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form. It was void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And God, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And what did God do in verse 3? He said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. And he separated the light and the darkness. In the first four lines of the Bible, we meet God, the focus of the whole Bible. And we meet him and he is there from the beginning. And we actually see, because we talk about a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we may not in Baptist world talk about it as much as other denominations, but we have a triune God, and in the first four verses of the Bible, we see all three figures of the Trinity. God in the beginning, there's the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, and then God creates through his word. He says, let there be light, and John will tell us in chapter one of his gospel that Jesus is the Word of God made manifest, that through Jesus all things were made. And so we have God creating. So the theme I want you to see today, there's two words or two phrases that you're going to catch on. God works is the story of the Bible. God works. And it says in those first six days of creation that God works to form the world and to fill the world with everything that we need. 
There is light and darkness. There is heaven and there is earth. There is land and sea. There is fruit and vegetation. There is day and night, sun and moon. There is living creatures, birds of the air, fish of the sea. There are the beasts of the field. And then the culmination of creation on the sixth day, God creates man. And he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, So God created man in a special way. It says, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And in case you're worried about the masculine-only words, guess what the very last phrase? Male and female, he created them. God has formed this world. He has filled this world with everything that we need to be sustained and provided for. And then at the end, he says, the culmination of my creation is I'm going to make one that has my image, that bears my image, and he is, and she are going to play a special role in my earth and in this world that I have created. And so man and woman are sent with responsibilities, with jobs. Yes, even in Eden, there was work. And it says in chapter 2 of Genesis that the job of every created being, the job of every created man and woman, was to work and to keep. I believe it's Genesis 2.15. We were called to work every day. We were called to steward, to keep it going. So God has worked, and the other phrase we need to know is this. People rebel. God works. He creates perfect world, a luxury, a paradise for them to be in. And then the people rebel. We see the first one happen in Genesis 3, don't we? Eve and Adam are tempted by the serpent to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. And they take, and because it was pleasing to their eye and they desired it in their hearts, they eat of what God said to stay away from. Why did they eat? Because they sought something more than what God had provided. They sought to be God. They sought to be like Him and to be a part of Him. They figured that they were missing out, that God was holding back, and so they desired what they were told to avoid. They failed to trust God. They failed to trust that He was good. They failed to trust that He had given them the best. And as they eat of the forbidden fruit, they usher sin into the world. The sin was not being tempted. Temptation can happen. That's fine. It is what we do with temptation. But come, eat of this fruit. You will surely not die. And they eat of the fruit and they usher sin in. Sin is a choice against the will and the way of God. Sin is a choice to fulfill our desires and to forego God's designations and desires. See, in Genesis chapter 2, right before the fall, we meet them. Genesis 2, verse 25, and it says, they were naked and unashamed. And seven verses later, in Genesis 3, 7, it says this, Then the eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. We go from naked and unashamed, enjoying the presence of God and the presence of one another, to now covered and hiding, because we have now ushered sin into the world, and it is now changing our minds. And what happens when the people rebel? God works with promises and punishments. We know the punishments. The, the, when we labor, the work will be futile at times. The ground will be hard and not giving. We understand that childbirth will now be painful. 
We understand that there will be broken relationships among families. And all of these things we have seen in our world. The punishments of God are real, but also are his promises. He even says in Genesis chapter 3, a lot of people may not know this. In Genesis chapter 3, there is a message of hope. Theologians call it the proto-evangelion, all right? Just meaning the first instance of the good news. God tells us what the end is going to look like in the beginning. Genesis 3, verse 15, he says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. It says at the very beginning, at the very bottom there, but he will bruise your head. He will destroy you the one that I am sending. God, from in the beginning, from the first punishment of the people, he is giving hope to the people. Even in their failure, God works to reveal hope, to establish boundaries. He also even comforts and meets their needs as he provides clothing, which are only needed because of their sin. He provides clothing to the hiding and shame-filled couple. And we see this cycle of God working and the people rebelling, carrying on. We're only in chapter 6 of the Bible when this statement is made. Chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. We are six chapters in. And everything has gone to hell. Only evil continually. So what does God do? He vows to destroy this evil and he saves one man. We know that man is Noah who builds a ship. It takes many years to believe that God will provide and God is saving. He builds the ship. A flood punishes the rebellion of the people. God works through flooding the earth and yet the people still rebel. The lineage of Noah is not immune to sin. And we see it very quickly afterwards, and it continues to grow, and it culminates in chapter 11 of Genesis, where now the people have decided that they want to reach heaven on their own accord. They're going to build this tower, and it says in chapter 11, verse 4, that they want to make a, their own name great. And God knows the problem of this rebellion, and so he confuses their language and stops their plans as they now are now speaking different languages, and these uh, language barriers are making it difficult or impossible to do their desired plan. God works. Then in Genesis chapter 12, God works. He calls Abram, an elderly man, a man that he says, go from your country, verse 1, of chapter 12, and your kindred and your father's house, everything that you know, everything that is comfortable, everything that you love and enjoy, leave it and go to a land that I will show you. He doesn't get GPS coordinates. He doesn't get a snapshot. He doesn't get a postcard for what it's going to look like. He is told by faith, leave everything that you know and trust me and I will show you the way. And then he makes promises to him in chapter 12. He says, I will make you a great nation. The problem is... 
Abram doesn't even have a lineage because he's 75 years old at this time and doesn't even have a kid. And so how can he be a great nation? God says, I will do this. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And get this, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God says, here is my plan. I am choosing you, Abram, to leave everything that you know. And this is Father Abraham that we hear about. He's got many sons, right? But he actually, when he is called, he has zero sons. And he is calling this man, Abram, an elderly couple, to then leave with a barren wife. And he says, I am going to provide a child for you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Abram and uh, Sarah have to be going, how in the world can this be true? And then for 25 years, they wait in faith, trusting God to provide. And then at age 100, Abram has a son. The Lord provides in an impossible situation and only the thing that God can do. He gives Abram a son. You are going, wow, God has worked. The plan is working. It's going to be great. But guess what? The people rebel. The lineage of Abram, they rebel over and over again. There is abuse, there is jealousy, there is cheating, there is lying, there is sleeping around, there's even attempted murder, and they're selling off a brother. The people rebel, and yet God continues to work, not for their name, but for his name, not for their plan, but for his plan. It brings us to the end of the book of Genesis, after all this lying, cheating, stealing has happened. And Abram has Isaac, who then has Jacob and Esau, and they fight, and Jacob is the, the one in through which the lineage is going to continue. And Jacob has tons of sons, and he has a favored son that he gives a coat of many colors. And this son, due to jealousy, is then sold off by his brothers, and he is sent to Egypt. And, and then he, he's doing well in Egypt, and he gets falsely accused of adultery, and he's thrown into prison, and you're going, God, what are you doing? This is not working. And then in prison, he's given supernatural discernment to, to interpret dreams, and he rises to power. And then a famine hits Egypt and all the surrounding areas. And the brothers of Joseph come to Egypt, and they're just looking to, for some kind of sustenance. Because the people of God are about to die due to starvation. Genesis chapter 50. What does it say? It says this, verse 20. Joseph is meeting with his brothers. Now he is in the second in command in Egypt. And his brothers are coming just asking for bread. And Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. See, you meant it for evil, but God has had a plan that is bigger and higher and, and bolder than anything that you can imagine. See, you tried to kill me, and yet God had to place me here so that he could work to keep this lineage along. See, God works to save the family during this severe famine, proving that he cannot and he will not give up on his people, even when they give up on him. The people exist in Egypt for a while, for a few hundred years, and eventually there arises a Pharaoh that does not know Joseph, and there's no favor given to Israel, and now they are seen as a threat. We institute uh, genocide, population control, overworking, 
and this plan by the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is to, we need to demoralize the people of Israel. We need to shrink the people of Israel because they're going to be a threat to us. And then God works, saving the baby that is floating for death out of the Nile, raising him up in Pharaoh's house, educating him in Pharaoh's house, and preparing him to be the one that saves the people. We know his name as Moses the one that God uses to save his crying out people who are hurting and needing help. Moses is the one that will lead the people out, but only because God is working. See, God works by showing signs. God works by sending plagues. God works by separating a sea when his people were about to die at the hands of an impending army. God works even while they whine. God works, and he explains it in the book of Exodus. I am doing this so that you may know and that all the worlds may know, all the people may know, that I am the God, that they may come to understand me. And the Israelite people grow in diversity as Egyptians and others are now becoming a part of this nation that is forming, that puts their faith in God. God has worked. He parts the Red Sea. They watch the enemy die. And then do you know what happens immediately after that? The people rebel. Moses has gone too long. We need something to see and to worship. And so they build a golden calf. God punishes them and says, this generation will not experience the promised land that I have for them. It's not going to happen. Their faithlessness has consequences. But then God works. He sustains this faithless generation with manna and quail every day. He is a guide to them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. He makes water for them when they are thirsty out of rocks. Then God works to provide Joshua to lead the people, this wandering people who are dying in the desert, this next generation, to lead them across the Jordan into this land that was promised to Abram many, many years ago. The problem is it's an inhabited land, and God works to win battles they had no business winning until the people get lazy and the people rebel. And they don't continue to push out the armies even though they have victory because their God is on their side. No, they live among the people, which God warned to never do. Because he knows that living among quickly turns into living like, and the people rebel. And over that time, Judges 21, 25 summarizes it best. In that day, there was no king, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. See, God even worked in their rebellion, sending judges to fight against these aggressive adversaries and to redeem and to pull back the people, and yet they continue to rebel. Eventually, they rebel so much that they reject their God. God, we don't like you leading us. We don't trust you anymore. You're not good enough for us. We need to see somebody. We need a tangible, physical king like everybody else does. We want to be like them. So God, give us a king. We are a nation. We want to create and be like every other nation. God warns them, no, you don't want a king. I am your good king who gives to you. If you install another king, he is going to take from you. He is going to install taxes. He is going to take the best of what you have. And they say, we don't care. We're tired of you. We're done with you. Give us a king. And so God allows them to have a king. We see Saul and then David and then Solomon step into that role as king. 
But see, the problem is, unlike when God is king, when he is perfect and good and holy and selfless, they are selfish and unholy and they are not perfect. And so these men fall in many ways. Saul, with poor worship, abandoning God in worship and not listening. David, he allows pride to overtake him and then he falls for the temptation of a woman. Solomon, he has lots of pride and lots of women overtake him. And so, the people of God, this nation, they were called a long time ago. They were given everything that they've been promised. They were installed by God in a land they should never have had. With one goal, that they were to live in response to Him in a way that it made everybody else see that worshiping this God actually made some a difference. Worshiping this God proved that He was the only real God and that He was higher than any other wooden carved thing they ever had made. And they were supposed to be a light in the midst of the nations to the nations to bring all people to understand who God is and how great He is. And yet... They rebelled. Rather than being a model of this God, the two nations split. Here's the part of church history or Bible history that we get a little fuzzy on, and so let's clear it up just a hair. The two nations split. It's actually over taxation issues, and they split into two different nations. Israel is 10 of the tribes represented, and it's called the Northern Kingdom. And you have Judah, which is the Southern uh, Kingdom, and it represents two tribes. And, and these nations now have these kings, and most of which are terrible, and they build worship sites for other gods. They have abandoned God. They have proved, and I mean, they have chosen all of this false worship and all these wrong things. They have forgotten the law of Moses, and as a result, punishments come on them. See, God promised in Deuteronomy and the law that he gave them, listen, if you will honor me, if you will obey me, then I will bless you beyond belief. But if you disobey me, there are consequences, there are punishments. And they get harder and more difficult and more treacherous and more painful every time. And the people do not heed the warnings of their God. And they fall into this rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. And it culminates in the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., Assyria, a pagan nation, comes and takes over the northern kingdom, Israel. Sends them into exile. Takes their land, takes their kids, takes everything that is good, ravages their land. And exile happens. God had been working, warning them through prophets, cautioning them, telling them what was to come if they would just turn their ways, but nobody would listen. Judah had understood that some bad things were happening up north, and so sometimes they would follow a little bit longer, about uh, 140 years more, and in 587 B.C., Babylon comes in and overtakes Judah. God has worked to warn and to foretell and to show, but the people continue to rebel, and exile happens, meaning they are removed from the land, they are now at the mercy of an oppressive nation. And then God works. Ezra chapter 1. You may not be familiar with this, but we need to be. Listen to this. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up who? The spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. So God works. Now it says stirring up in this pagan king that does not know him, does not worship him. And what does he say in verse 2? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem. And they say, go rebuild the house of the Lord. Did you catch that? It all seemed over for the nation of Israel. They are in exile. They are under another group, another nation. And God works through the king of that other nation to fulfill his plan. And they rebuild the temple. And you would think, okay, they get it. They've understood. They're following now directions. They've seen the costliness of this. But do you know what happens again? God works, and it's getting redundant at this point. The people rebel. Malachi chapter 1, the last writing we have from a prophet in the Old Testament, verse 10 says this, Oh, that there be one among you that would shut the doors that you may not kindle a fire in my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of angel armies. He is furious at what is happening. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it as you've polluted my table. God has worked and worked and worked and sought his people and tried to get them to understand and to believe and to trust. And yet they do not. Listen. And then after the book of Malachi, we have 400 years of silence. Four hundred years of waiting. Probably 15 generations of not seeing or hearing the hand of God. I mean, you think back to 400 years. I mean, we're talking about um, the Mayflower setting sail. And then God works. God breaks the silence. Not sending a word through prophets, but sending the word of God, his son, to be born of a virgin, to be uh, here for us to live a sinless life. Jesus says that my mission is to declare in Luke chapter 4 verse 18 to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes to rebellious people 
and says, my purpose is to bring about salvation that you could never earn and that you have zero deserving of. My purpose is to do what you, weakened by the flesh, what you, tempted by sin, can never accomplish. Jesus says, I am going to make a way because you can never make your own way. God works by sending his son. And what do the people do? Right in line with everything else they've done, they rebel. And the sent one, the Messiah, the anticipated one, the longed for one, the pointed to one, the hoped for one, the promised one, the needed one is killed. He is crucified on a cross as a criminal. And yet, God works. His perfect plan understood our rebellion. It didn't cause our rebellion. It understood our rebellion. And it works around us, not needing us. And it used what we meant for evil to bring about good. To bring about salvation. God works as the tomb is empty and the grave is robbed. As he raised Christ from the dead and he was paying through his death the penalty that we owed, a substitute for us, atoning for our sins, and he raises him to life, showing that death does not have final say, that death is not the uh, victorious, that death no longer has a sting, but there is hope, even in death, for life. Because Jesus comes so that we may have life. Church, Jesus always was plan A of God. In the beginning, God knew and God had already chosen to send Jesus for us. No amount of sin did we ever choose would ever stop him from loving us and seeking us and desiring us and giving us a way and giving his life as a substitute. The story of God always planned for Jesus because God knew that we could never do it on our own. God continues to work to this day through his church, through rebellious people that are pointing to salvation. God continues to work today through his word to bring hope to the hopeless. God is continuing to work even as the world rebels. From the garden and its fruit to the tower to make a name for ourselves to selfish desires to failure to obedience to this insatiable desire for more and more and more to sinful desires of what is not ours. We run for desires of pleasure and of power and of prominence and it has permeated every bit of this life and yet God works and he says there is something more, friends. This world will no longer satisfy and will never satisfy. Every treasure you build here will rust. It will be destroyed. It will be no more. There is no hope beyond the grave. What is the point in giving all of your life to this? He says, I have a better story for you, a story that steps into eternity, a story that doesn't end here on this earth, but a story 
story that I have been writing because I have loved you from the beginning. I have known you from the beginning. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and I have desired you. And so the story of God is not a story of a distant deity who has nothing to do with the people and he just sets them up for destruction. No, the story of Christianity is the story of God coming to us to live among us, to die for us, and to give us life forever. And this is the story that I hope changes your story. The story that is the true story. The story that ends happily ever after for those who believe. Because I said we're getting to Revelation and he hadn't gotten there yet. So what's going on? In Revelation, we see these battles of cosmic and spiritual forces. But we also know that not only does God work, but God wins. And we see as the battles take place that they cannot overcome our God. And we are shown, I believe it's in chapter 7 of Revelation, that there will be a day where every tribe and every tongue and every nation are singing to the Lord, Hallelujah, for the Lamb was slain for us, that every corners of this earth have access to the same gospel and to the same God, no matter their language, no matter their color of skin, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their economic situation, but that all people are known by God and loved by God and desired by God, and that they will be singing to God those who have placed their faith in Him. And we know of what it's going to look like. In the last year, I've done infinity more funerals than I've ever done in my life. But one would have caused that too if you're a math person. So, yeah. But, but I do tell you that there is peace every time I do a funeral because I talk of this. In Revelation chapter 20, it says this. And there is a place. Let me read it because I don't want to paraphrase poorly. I don't have this one on the screen because we're off script right now and we're going to try to land this plane. Oh, Revelation. Chapter 21, excuse me, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne will say, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And then he says to John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. There is a happily ever after to this one true story. See, we have bought into stories. We've bought into the story that, man, if I can go to this college and get this degree, then it's, man, life's going to be good. That story doesn't always end happily ever after. We've bought into the story of, if I can just marry this person, if I can just find somebody to love and to marry and to be and to have a kid, then, then my story will end happily ever after, but it doesn't. We have bought into the story that if I can make this amount of money, if I can get this healthy, if I can get over this battle with this illness or sickness, then life will be good ever after, and it doesn't. But there is a story that ends happily ever after. 
And Disney didn't write this story. But it is a story that God is creating a place for us, a place that he is inviting all who will believe in him and trust in him, a place that will be a place with no more weeping or hurting or crying or fear anymore, a place where everybody is invited and where God is in our midst forever. Theologians call what we are in the midst of right now the already but not yet. We know what is going to happen, but it's not happened just yet. It's like watching your favorite movie. You don't worry as much. You don't fret as much. You know what is going to happen because you got all the spoilers. And so as we read the Bible, as we live this life, and as we struggle through the day-to-days of sin and temptation, of struggle, of sickness and health, we know the end. And those of us who understand this story and who have given our life to this story know how it ends. And so, this is the story that truly changes our stories. And I hope that you know this story and have given your life to this story. Because the story is Jesus Christ came and lived perfectly for you, to die for you so that he could invite you to be a part of life with him forever. You are not enough, but Jesus is more than enough for you. Do you believe that? Let me pray.